and welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. On the show today, we have with us Mike Schwartz with CalLab Solutions. Mike has spent the last 25 years writing automation for all types of test equipment, and most recently, he's been working with the NCSLI's 141 Automation Committee, and as well as other international organizations, defining the roles calibration will play in the information age. He let me know that he likes long walks in the park, high accuracy meters, and intrinsic standards that never need calibration. And of course, not to be outdone, Mike let me know that like all good metrologists, he was also potty trained before the age of two. I'm excited to have Mike on the podcast today, and please enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. Michael Schwartz, welcome to the podcast. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, obviously, this is the first podcast of the of the new year. It's nice starting it off with, with you. I definitely want to start off the podcast talking about the magazine and CalLab Solutions. Uh, if you don't mind talking to us a little bit about the background of the magazine. Yeah, so the magazine has been going on for quite a few years. Um, we acquired it back in 2011 from Carol Singer. So, and um, as it was, as Carol was uh, deciding to shut the magazine down or sell it off, uh, we found that uh, we had a, a good offer though, that she put on the table and we were able to, to meet her offer. So that turned into being a really good thing for CalLab Solutions. So CalLab Solutions itself is primarily a software company. So we write calibration and automation procedures for many of the companies out there. We've uh, done a lot to um, to build automation around MetCal. We built our first automation platform, PSCal, uh, years back and recently sold that off to TGAM. And now we're working on metrology.net as a new platform. So, but uh, acquiring the magazine, we kind of wanted to get the magazine to put us more central. You know, as a small company, it's nice having those connections into things in the industry. So we got a lot of um, uh, communications with manufacturers. And uh, one of the big things that happened was uh, the first year we bought the magazine, the second issue, we actually got a press release about the 5522, you know, and I picked up the phone and I called the guys out of Fluke and said, hey, how am I, why is it I'm hearing about the 5522 coming out of Australia, not from you guys directly, because you guys know me, you know, and what we do with Metcal procedures and whatnot. You know, you could hear crickets chirping in the room. How did I find this information out? Because it wasn't supposed to be released in the U.S. till two weeks later. But what was going on in Australia is in Australia, they actually had a trade show going. And one of the reps in Australia wanted us to get it in the magazine. So that's how we found out about them. So for me, it kind of allowed me to see that that, uh, that connection was working for us getting industry news, being at the top of that. And then the reason we bought it goes back to when, when I first started the company, Carol gave me a really good, um, she gave us a really good deal on a one page uh, magazine article. So, you know, deal we couldn't refuse. So we picked it up and we posted that article. And at the time I was using Google Analytics to see where people were finding me and what was going on. And people would find CalLab Solutions by doing a search looking for a MetCal procedure 
or looking for a make model that they wanted something. And that's how they would find my site. Gotcha. And instantly I noticed that my search, my keyword search changed from Metcal to CalLab Solutions. So though my phone wasn't ringing off the hook, I could tell, you know, instantaneously, I could tell that these guys were finding my company by name just by looking at my keyword search. So I could see how effective, you know, advertising was, even though, you know, it didn't have a dramatic effect on sales. Sure. And, you know, I think uh, one of the biggest things with the magazine is that people are aware that it is offered free, at least in, in this country. Uh, I know as a technician, I would see magazines in certain labs or whatever, but I didn't understand, you know, exactly what went into the, into the magazine. Do you want to talk a little bit about your future vision for it? I know you have some big projects and stuff coming up. Um, is there any of that you want to discuss? Yeah, well, it's difficult keeping the magazine going because we need to get the articles in. So that's, that's a, a, always a tough thing, getting the articles in to have enough quality articles to put together the magazine. We do get a lot of uh, articles in that, you know, just don't add value back to the technician. So in a perfect world, I'd like to have a metrology 101 article. I'd like to have another article that's like uh, uh, reaching out to the next level of calibration, you know, something that an NMI is working on or something that a primary lab is working on. And then also having in the mix there something that's related towards better management or better quality operations in the magazine. So that's the the perfect scenario or the perfect mix of, of uh, articles we'd like to get. Yeah, I, I, I think that's um, a really good thing because if I was to describe the industry in one word, it would be fragmented. You know, our, as calibrators, as metrologists, we're all kind of fragmented in the United States and, and having something that unites everything, I think, is a good thing. Yep. And we try to reach out to the labs that we find that are experts in a particular area, try to talk them into, into articles. We reach out to the major manufacturers to get articles around their uh, pieces of test equipment that they're in, introducing and bringing onto the market. So um, one of the uh, funny things was is to, to kind of show the power of the magazine. We were at a show in Orlando. I forget the year. But there was a company down there that started, you know, making their own test equipment. And they were saying the majority of hits they got on their website was trackbacks on them sending a press release to us. So, so that's another thing to get out there for free advertising and things. If you're a manufacturer or do something in metrology that you've got something that's press release worthy, you know, send it in. We'll get it on the website, definitely. And then we'll kind of select because, you know, page page limitation, we'll select those items that go into the magazine as new press releases. And also calibration labs that have a new metrology capability they're taking on and they've got some new piece of equipment. You know, we like to get somebody using that piece of equipment on the cover, you know, to show what's going on. And we get things from around the world. You know, we've got one, the last issue was from New Zealand. But we've also got them from, you know, uh, Australia. We've got them from um, Egypt. Uh, we've got them from um, Israel. You know, we just get them from all kinds of places around the world. Now, so, I know some people listening, their hesitation might be like, oh, I'm, I've am i only been doing this for, you know, fill in the blank of however long. You know, they, they probably figure you need to have a PhD or something to do this. But really, you know, when you're talking about that calibration 101, 
there's a lot of opportunities out there for individuals to contribute. Yes, yes. And that's the thing that we're trying to do is, you know, a lot of labs that I talk to in the next five to 10 years, somewhere in that time frame, they're going to lose 50% of their technicians and their technicians are just going to retire. They're just not going to work anymore. And the problem is, is getting that knowledge passed down from, you know, the technician that's doing the work now, bringing it down into the next generation of technician, because there's a lot of a lot of things they've learned over the years, you know, tricks and and whatnot. One of the best articles we ever had was on um, understanding needle width and understanding how the needle width actually helps you estimate between the marks on a gauge that the needle width is usually the size of the smallest, um, smallest increment on the gauge. And the needle width is that width because it's the to help you understand what the measurement value is between the the marks. Mm-hmm. So so there's been some really good 101 articles that people have written and then, you know, retired. Right. So but it's a great great way to give back to the industry that little bit of knowledge. Sure. Now, it, it, the main topic uh, of course of today is we're going to be talking about that digital transformation in metrology. Uh, before we go into that, I did want to touch on the other part of your company, CalLab Solutions, focusing on the automation now, uh, and also your website. I think it's important that people understand your website has a ton of things that can be found there: resources, uh, papers. You know, like you were saying, um, Cal, your your the CalLab magazine. How much do you want to talk a little bit about that? About your um, the website and the things that can be found on there. Well, we hit the, uh, so on the CalLab solution site, one of the things out there that's really, you can come up and you can look at the subscriptions. And if you live in the continental United States, you can subscribe. You got to fill out a little survey. So we use that to help talk to the advertisers. But the advertisers is what primarily funds the magazine. And we give that information back to them, not your, you know, phone number and email address, but what industry you're in. So we'll give that information back to them. So if they want to target that industry, they know how many readers we have. So you can come out and get a free subscription in the United States. Some companies, um, they come in and buy those. So we sell the U.S. delivery for 55. Um, United or the Americas will sell those out for 55 and then international is 65. I wish we could afford to deliver the magazine internationally for free. The problem there is international shipment of the magazines doesn't even cover the $65 it takes in a year to do those. So we kind of augment those out. So, and then uh, some of the other things is there's a lot of, uh, if you start digging around on the site, there's a lot of freeware software that's up there. And there's all the articles and all the magazines are available on PDF. So you can reach in and grab those. And there's a couple places where you can come in and subscribe to them. So you can install an app on your phone and then subscribe to it. And as soon as the issue is out, your phone will be notified or your tablet. And that is that is there. What we've discovered is the younger generation, they like to read things more digitally. But the older generation, they still like to have their, you know, feel touch magazine, maybe write some notes in it. I'm amazed when I go into break rooms and and companies, you know, across the United States that I'll see CalLab Magazine and then Major and Metrologist sitting on their desks or on their tables in their waiting rooms. 
So I'm amazed at how many places will actually have these magazines out there. Yeah, that's a, that's where I first saw them. I think we had one in one of our marine calibration labs. Do you do you send some to the military out there? Yes, yes. We yeah. did a campaign, um, God, back in 2012 or 2013, I think it was. So, but we did a campaign out there where we were not only sending the magazines to people in the military for free, but everybody who bought a procedure from Calab Solutions, we actually sent Starbucks Via out to people in the military. So, so we would go out and grab 200 packets of Starbucks Via and then send it out to a calibration lab, you know, somewhere out that was, uh, that was deployed. But I thought that was a great program because, you know, me in the military, you know, all we used to get out of those MRE packets is we would get that uh, instant coffee. Yeah, that little pouch. <laughs> yep. Uh, when Via first came out, it actually fooled me. I couldn't taste the difference between Starbucks Via and their and their uh, roasted coffee or their drip coffee. So I was impressed with it. So I started uh, sending those out. And I think we did that for about two years. And then we stopped that campaign. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Um, so that that definitely brings us into some of your other projects, you know, and and kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about today in that digital transformation. I wanted to start out with talking about taxonomy. I know that's the one that took me the most time to to uh, comprehend over our many discussions. Is do you think that's the the best place to start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think starting in the middle is a great is a great place to start because I believe, and when I started this years ago, it was kind of like a um, kind of like a pipe dream. But as we get more and more done with this metrology taxonomy, I think it's going to be the Rosetta Stone that people need as they're going to go in and digitize or do this digital transformation for metrology. You know, there's so many places we see it as the key. And just yesterday, no, actually, I'm sorry, just last Monday. So, so the last Monday of 2020, I found out that the um, that the Europeans have came to the conclusion that they, and this is the same conclusion that we have, is they're having a hard time connecting this thing called DCC, Digital Certificates of Calibration, back to scopes of accreditation that they were getting ready to start building two different standards. And one of the people in our group reached out to them and said, hey, you should look at what these American guys are doing, that this may be that key that allows you to go from digital certificate of calibration to scope of accreditation. Yeah. So let's let's break down exactly what a taxonomy is. People might be familiar uh, with it from like the animal kingdom or whatever. Uh, do you want to, I, I have some printed up here um, that we can go through. You want to talk about exactly what they are? Yeah, so that's exactly what we did. We stole from the, you know, animal world or the biological world and that tree of life. So, you know, you'll have bacteria, single cell uh, uh, life forms, and it'll eventually bring itself up to mammals and reptiles and, you know, things like dolphins are not fish. They're mammals that live in the sea. So we kind of stole from that, you know, looking at the things that they have in common versus the things that make them different. And as we started doing this, it was a, it was a huge learning event, you know, because there's a lot of things that, um, that me as a metrologist, I didn't understand the, the way things were separated out. 
But as we started looking at how things are measured and how they're separated out, we started getting a much better, uh, much more refined version of how all of these measurements interrelate with each other. Yeah. And, and just to give the listeners an example, like I have a, the list of some of the, the ones that you guys in your group have, have already gone through. So for instance, like test process, measure temperature, but then you can further break that temperature down to simulate RTD or simulate um, thermocouple. You know, you, you break down not just a temperature measurement, but what exact, and you call them quantities. What quantity are you actually measuring at that end result, correct? Yes, exactly. And this oh. is important. Do you want to explain why this is uh, long-term important for those projects? That was the, the first problem that we saw as we're going into digitizing calibration certificates. If you're looking at just a unit of measure and you grab something like volts, so you grab a V off there and say this is a volts, you don't know if it's an AC voltage or a DC voltage measurement. And the same thing with temperature, right? You're going to grab a temperature measurement off of there. So you're going to see um, degrees C, degrees K, or uh, degrees Fahrenheit. So you're going to see those quantities on there. But if, if I'm a lab, and this is why it comes down into these quantities, because units of measure can mean different things in different domains. The biggest one is going to be force and torque. You know, those measurements are, are, those units of measure are the same, but they're used differently and how they're represented is, represented is different. So we wanted to get some kind of a tag that sits in that certificate of calibration that says this is the quantity that I'm measuring with more data about the quantity. So now the concept behind quantity is quantity is a single unit of measure or a group of units of measure that know how to be converted between them. So when you have a quantity of temperature, you know that it can be expressed as Fahrenheit, Kelvin, or Celsius. So now you can build a tool that says when I see the quantity temperature, if I wanted Fahrenheit and you gave me Celsius, I can just convert those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then these things can be further tracked to those digital certificates. Yep, exactly. And that's the problem that you have. That's that first problem that you have is you got a certificate of calibration that's doing Fahrenheit, right? And it's actual temperature. So you're, you're sourcing a Fahrenheit and sticking a thermometer in there and it's measuring it. Mm -hmm. Scope of accreditation says Celsius. How do you go look that up? How do you automatically verify that those two uncertainties or that your uncertainty on your digital calibration certificate isn't less than what's on your scope of accreditation? So that's kind of what happens in the power of having this taxonomy. It allows you to go from from system to system and get that actual line that you're looking for. Right. Yeah. And I think that's and it can be further attached to training, you know, making sure that technicians doing specific uh, quantities have had the specific training towards that quantity as well. Yes, yes, yes. As well as sourcing and measuring, because sometimes they're completely different in what the training aspect is behind things. Sourcing a pressure versus measuring a pressure, you know, your metrology could be completely different. Yeah, good point. And, you know, I think um, there's a lot more. I, I had a question written down here. What are some of the hesitations you see in the industry moving towards this type of digital transformation in, in metrology? Obviously, the taxonomy is a work in progress. 
but I was thinking about it myself with just when they're um, actually handwriting their data, you know, when we're talking about on sites and things like that, not doing mobile data entry and, and other things where they're hesitating to go to that digital solution. Have you had any feedback of why, or do you have any thoughts of why, what some of those hesitations in the industry might be? Well, a lot of it comes down to, uh, you know, this is the way we've always done it. So we're not going to make any changes, but I think the industry is going to start forcing those changes as we're moving into this industry 4.0, you know, that's where we're going to start seeing some of these changes. So when we look at the different industries, you know, metrology is kind of stuck in that industry 2.0. You know, we haven't really moved into the 3.0 with the automation, except in the electrical area. And then the automation 4.0 or the industry 4.0 is going to be about machines making decisions. And that's what I think it's going to start getting really, really pushed is because the machines need to have that data and they need to have that data in a consumable format so they can make decisions. Right. Yeah. And the, and if basically the, the industry 4.0, uh, for those of you that don't know, the thought process behind it is there's a constant check on, you know, those thermocouples and special spots or uh, pressure sensors or whatever that the computer actually has can request a calibration or if they see, if it sees something off, is, isn't that right? Am I understanding yeah, yeah, that you, correctly? Yeah. You can see it's going to come down to how they, how they come in and start training a lot of these things or how they start working with these artificial intelligence or the algorithms. And I hate to pick on Boeing, but they've been getting picked on a lot and they've got their seven, seven thirty-seven maxes back in the air, but that's a great example of what's going to happen in industry 4.0. They had a, a algorithm that was meant to keep the aircraft in the air looking at an angle detector. So what's the angle that it's taking off? And that one sensor gave back a bad reading, which caused the algorithm to sit to nose the plane down because it thought it was pitching too high. So what you're going to see in more and more of these systems is you're going to see redundancy so you're going to have and, and you're going to have lots of sensors that are going to be calibrated. And if if it was me, I would calibrate my sensors at different intervals so that I don't introduce the same error. Because if somebody comes to me with a calibration standard and is going to calibrate something and he's off a little bit and he calibrates both of my sensors and both of my detectors, then he can introduce the same error on both of my detectors. So what I think the industry is going to eventually move to is going to have multiple detectors that are calibrated at different intervals and they can start using that data and bring that data back into the machine with the certificate of calibration and the machines can start saying who they're going to trust and who they're not going to trust. Right. You know, and some manufacturers are ahead of this too, because they're installing, you know, I've calibrated quite a few autoclaves that they'll have a master and, and uh, a standby uh, temperature sensor, you know, that way, yeah, you calibrate them at the same time, but they rarely fail at the same time, you know? And so if one is, and those would have, you know, if it's off by, if they are off from each other by half a degree, it would shut the machine down. So that's kind of just an example of something. The only, the only thing that uh, isn't 4.0 about that is there isn't anything over the whole facility taking in that information. Isn't that the, the biggest distinguishing factor is, yeah, an individual machine could have 
the ability to have some of those 4.0 industry 4.0 functionality, but maybe an entire manufacturing plant hasn't got the overarching. Well, as I read about the 4.0, what I'm seeing the biggest distinction is, is, is industry 3.0 was about bringing in robotics and bringing in automated systems. But you still had somebody sitting down there and writing the code, writing the rules. So in that autoclave, you use it as an example, they made a rule. If they're off by 0.5 degrees, shut down, give them an error that says they're off by 0.5 degrees. What's going to happen in industry 4.0 is you're going to see more artificial intelligence and machines making decisions without a human telling them to make that decision. So it's going to become less and less an algorithm that a human wrote and more of machine just analyzing data and making decisions based on that data. Interesting. So that's the scary thing everyone's talking about. (laughs) Doesn't need us to think anymore. So us as an industry, you know, outside of participating in some of this taxonomy stuff, because aren't aren't you looking for people um, in certain areas to help out still? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely, we meet uh, every Monday, the NCSLI 141 committee meets every Monday to talk about the taxonomies, and we need experts to come in and look at the taxonomies we defined and tell us, hey, you didn't think about this thing, you know, this other thing that comes into it, and help us come in with some uh, newer taxonomies. So one of the ones we're having a hard time with as an example is heart. You know, can you go from a Rockwell hardness tester to a Collins, I think is the other one. No, Rockwell Collins is one of the hardness testers, and there's another standard for hardness testing. You know, is hardness its own quantity, or is Rockwell hardness its own quantity and different from the other hardness quantities? You know, can you make a correlation? Is it a, is it a quantity that you can convert from one to the other, or are they individual quantities? So there we need somebody who's who's an expert in, in hardness testing, the metallurgical side of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, you know, when we're as calibrators, we're always in our own little world, you know, and, and we, we cover the scope wherever we're working, but sometimes it's hard to really think of the big picture of metrology and how huge, I mean, just the, the list that you have on your website is enormous. And that's, you know, just a few, a few different, um, quantities there, you know, Getting through all of them's got to be a big, a big task. Yeah, if I had to shoot from the hip, I would say what we have on the website is just ten percent of what we need to to look at out there when we start looking at measurement as a whole. Right now, we're focusing on just the CMC. So, Water Labs putting on their scope of accreditation, mm-hmm. and how and the thing that we want to do with our software, Metrology.net is we want to be able to go in and automatically look at a scope of accreditation and put a check mark that that value is on the scope of accreditation and the measurement uncertainties generated by our software is less than what's on that scope of accreditation. So that's kind of where we're focusing now, but we think there's a lot to move out from. Yeah, and and that's one of the nice things about your software uh, is the real-time calculation with the standards that you're actually using, you know, kind of, kind of going back to your automation stuff, you know, that's something that can't be glossed over either. You know, when you, when you talk about automation 
a lot of automation that's out there is being developed by the manufacturers that create it. You know, and what we really need is the things that will control any standard and and bring in those uncertainties of anything that you have on your scope because labs can be so different between each other. I mean, is that fair to say? Yep, and that's exactly what we're looking at. So as we built this out, we started with the quantity. What's the thing that we're counting? And then on top of the quantity, we add the taxonomy or the taxon. This is this is the the differences in this quantity versus all the different ways you can measure this quantity. This is the uniqueness of this quantity. Then on top of that, labs stack on top of that their technique. So the technique that they're going to use to to source or measure that quantity. And that's where it ties back into the CMCs is tied to that taxonomy and that technique. And a good example of it is, is we look at a key cytoscope procedure, right? The key cytoscope procedure says use a power supply because Keysight makes power supplies. Use a DMM because Keysight makes DMMs and adjust that power supply until the DMM reads five volts and then see what the voltmeter or what the oscope is reading from that, from that voltmeter measurement, right? So you're comparing a measurement to a measurement. So that is a, ta- that is a technique based on a taxonomy of source volts DC. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of where the distinction comes in as to how we do this and how we're thinking about, you know, take the, take the individual technique out of the taxonomy and look at what's the root of what we're doing in that taxonomy and forget about the standards and who made them. Because most of the people out there are using either a Fluke 9500 or a 5522 to calibrate their oscopes. Mm-hmm. Which going to generate the DC voltage, you know, straight out of the output without monitoring it. Right. Yeah. Without the, the need of any, yeah, the, the multimeter on there. Yeah. I think that's another good distinction to make is that, uh, techniques can be different from lab to lab as far as, uh, you know, standards can be different, but also techniques. And I know at least on our end as a school, sometimes there's hesitation to participate in things like this because people feel that they have, this proprietary way of calibrating things where, you know, in general, the actual techniques should be somewhat similar um, or along the same uh, physics principles and everything. But uh, you're, you're the actual place that is doing those calibrations, that knowledge of a machine or their specialized um, processes, you know, that's not what anybody's asking for. They're just, you're just asking for help with actually, what goes into each of those taxons. Yep, yep, exactly. And that's one of the things that's interesting, working with some of the national metrology labs out there, you get to see a little bit of an idea of how these high-end, you know, measurement techniques will start at a national metrology lab, and then they'll slowly work their way down into a primary lab, and they'll work their way down into a standard that somebody is making, you know, that gets calibrated at the primary lab and then goes out to the field. And it's really wild how you get to see these these little things that will come in and influence things. So one of the ones that we've seen presentations on is the U.S. made the kibble balance and some other companies or countries came in and made the kibble balance that's using um, voltage and current and motion to realize the kilogram. 
And then you see other countries out there like New Zealand that started looking at a project using pressure and flow to do the same thing. And we're going to see, you know, over time that these measurement techniques to, to measure mass more accurate are going to actually filter down into the, the standards that we're going to see, you know, probably 2030, 2040. Interesting. You mean where we can actually realize it at the same level as them? Is that what you're saying? Well, you may not be able to realize it at the same level as them, but the standards are going to become much, much more accurate. So NIST is pushing this NIST on a chip, which I don't think I'll see in my metrology career because there's a lot to, to get things down to being that small. But some of the things that we're seeing is going to be, I would guess in the next five years, we're probably going to see a field transportable uh, jo AC Josephine Junction. So an AC voltage standard that'll do both AC and DC, that'll be about the size of a cooler, right? That you can fit in the back of a vehicle and have that level of accuracy, that uh, intrinsic level of accuracy that puts you comparable to NIST, though there's requirements now that, you know, American labs can't be greater than the accuracies of NIST because they have to show traceability. Right. See that 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 margin decrease. Yeah the 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 whole um, uh, traceable through NIST, <laughs> not to NIST through NIST. Everyone at the school knows that you got you yes. do your your traceability through NIST, not to NIST. So um, I kind of cut myself off on the question because um, we we went f forward on uh, the taxonomy, but so what can labs do to prepare for these industry 4.0 situations? Um, is it just keeping up to date and actually breaking out of that? You know, this is how we always do it. You know, is it, what is the best solution for anybody working at a lab that's listening? Well, right now I'm going to tell labs to be prepared. Look at the technologies that are out there that right now it's kind of like a, you know, race to 5g and a race to 6g. You know, it took a long time for the industry to come in. And when you look at these, when you look at the things that came out is they're calling it 5G, but there's all kinds of different flavors of 5G. So, you know, so, so that's kind of what you're going to see going on. And what I see going on in the short term is the MII committee. So the NCSL 141 MII committee, we're working on our standard. But we've also seen other organizations out there. So DCC from Germany's PTB, they're working on their standard. So you're going to see a lot of standards coming through. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see which standard is going to win. Mm. Biggest difference that I see right now is the DCC out of PTB. They're working on an XML standard that gets generated into a document. So the calibration labs out there won't receive a PDF or a printed document. They'll get an XML-based file. And I think the industry is going to push back on that because even though you can secure a file and encrypt a file and crypto check it and all of these different things, I still see the industry moving a little bit slower and they're going to want their PDF. And last year at NCSL, um, 2020 NCSL, um, there was a um, paper put out by Colin Decker from Sandia, 
where they did an interesting thing where they took the PDF that they standardly give their customers and they embedded in the PDF, the XML about the data. So where I see that becoming a bigger standard is you can give the customer one PDF that they're used to seeing, but you can have three or four or five different XML formats embedded into that PDF. So now whatever system the customer wants to consume, he can just open that PDF and extract out that XML. So, so that's the way I think the industry is going to go. And that was brought up at the DCC. Some of the questions is, you know, they're pushing back on PTB about going XML or going a PDF with XML embedded instead of just XML that transforms itself out. Sure. And I, and one thing that you told me about um, outside the podcast that I think is also interesting is that customers can just request the tests they want, you know, in a, in a digital way. It, for those of you that don't interact with a lot of customers, there's oftentimes customers have no idea how to answer your questions as a calibrator. You know, some of it is learning how to uh, figure out the accuracies they need or whatever. But what's nice is that um, once we have those, can't, can't they look at how other people have had them done and request similar things or, you know, the, the digital requests for tests is going to be much more streamlined. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that's going to happen. And the DCC, there's a group out of Holland that's working on a DCR, so Digital Calibration Request. So, and that's one of the things that I think the metrology taxonomy is going to change. And one of the things we built into metrology.net is that ability to do a DCR where you can digitally request how you want something calibrated. And the idea behind this and what sticks in the back of my mind is I was asked one time to go out and do a calibration at a customer site and, or I'm sorry, go out and do a calibration software at a customer site for a customer. So I'm at a customer's customer site and they have this technician that's arguing with the customer out there about he can't calibrate this signal generator. Right. And the, the thing is, it's a high end uh, HP 8663. And the customer is like, well, why can't you calibrate it? The other lab that was here, you know, they could do it. And then, you know, the the typical calibration calibrator out there, oh, that lab just put stickers on anything, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this isn't going to end well. So, so me knowing the company owner and the salesperson, I kind of go inject myself in this conversation. And I explained to the customer why he can't calibrate this because he can't do sideband phase noise on site. They just don't bring that rack of equipment out to do that work. So, so after having the conversation with the customer, the customer's like, I don't need that stuff. All I want is frequency and power. And I said, well, we should check frequency, power, harmonics, and, you know, uh, spectral purity. We should check those and then you're good. And then I looked at the technician and said, call the salesperson, tell them that's what they want. And you can put that out there as a full calibration, not a limited, because that was the customer's request. And according to 17025, they can do that. So, but what it made me sit back and think as I asked that customer, why does he have, you know, this $30,000 standard, right? for doing signal or for signal sources, 
when he could go out and buy a $4,000 signal generator that'll do the same thing. And the customer looks at me and says, oh my God, I didn't realize that. He says, what actually happened is when my signal generator broke, this signal generator I got for free because that area, and he pointed to this great big warehouse area that was open, just nothing there, that area shut down production. So I got that signal generator for free. So he had no idea the level of signal generator that he had, and he had no idea he could probably sold that signal generator and got six more. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Not I love that because uh, everything you just said there, for anyone that's had to deal with customers, this is a very familiar situation, you know, especially with other Cal Labs being involved inside. Like for me, it's out here in the valley, you know, in Salt Lake City. But yeah, you always run into places doing calibrations that, you know, you're saying, hey, I can't do this. Oh, well, another lab did. You know, how did that happen? You know, that's that's funny. So that's kind of the idea that we have with metrology.net long term is to, you know, and it's going to take 10, 15 years to educate calibration labs and then educate customers. But we use it as a way of communicating where the customer can come in and say, this is the calibration I want on my piece of equipment. So they could come in and select some nav air data points and say, that's what I want calibrated. Or they could come in and say, you know, I want the full-blown manufacturer's calibration per their manual. And that's one of the things that's very interesting when you see what happens in the industry. So you open up, you'll pick on Fluke for a minute, but you open up Fluke's 5500, uh, manual, and you look at the calibration data points in their manual. Then you look at the calibration you get back from their calibration lab. Those things don't match 100%. And there's very few manufacturers you'll see that in. So the question comes down to, in that particular instance, did metrology department know more about the equipment and built you a better calibration procedure or not? And I see this across all the manufacturers out there where their data points from their manual and their factory cows don't correlate. And it really comes down to the calib or to the calibration lab's customer. What does that calibration lab need to do for that particular customer? Because they're not always going to be the same. Yeah, the um, manual coming from the manufacturer is a great place to start, but maybe that customer needs more data points. And I see this a lot in the cellular industry. The cell industry wants their key data points, their control their control frequencies for each one of their bands. They want those calibrated as well as all of their channel commands. They don't care about the rest of the frequencies in the signal in the signal generator. So those are the things that I think that will help the industry do is get that calibration that you need. Right. And sometimes I think customers don't understand that they could ask for very specific things. I know we have some manufacturers that do listen and, and are a part of our, our school. And that's the biggest thing to get across to them is that as the customer, it, as you know, 17025, you know, a lot of that goes into the customer and their needs and their risk, you know, the analysis of their risk. And, you know, the Cal Lab really shouldn't be making that decision in, unless the customer's involved. Yep, yep. And that's the thing is figuring out, you know, what's a good calibration? You know, there's a um, one of the things I noticed uh, just going through and writing automation 
is, you know, you look at the Fluke 87 line and you look at the data points they collected on the Fluke 87 line, then all of a sudden they started doing more frequencies at higher voltages. Well, when you look at that, it's because the manufacturer added that feature to the calibrator, not, and now they could test it on the unit under test. Same thing out there with uh, key site power supplies, right? You look at the peak to peak noise, mm -hmm. and look at it was always a specification that they had. But as soon as somebody figured out a way to measure that, then it started getting added into the, the data points that they were collecting. Interesting. So, so that's what happens is did the customer need it or didn't he need it? You know, and that's, I actually wrote down a question about that uh, since we're talking about it. And I think people would be interested because I know I am. How much time goes into developing a single procedure? What what are how do you decide? Hey, you know, I, I see what um, Fluke did on this procedure. I see what Navair did on this procedure. How what's your process with that stuff? If you're able to share it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's perfectly fine. I share this with all of my customers, and a lot of it comes back into the pricing of our procedures. Because some people come in and look at a procedure like uh, one that we did for a Rodian Schwartz CMW 500. So that as a manual cow will probably take you two to three days to do all the data points in there manually. So when we price that one out, they see the price of that. They're like, oh, my God, you know, you're trying to bankrupt my company. And I'm like, well, when you start creating the automation and you start doing it, um, you start doing the automation and creating it and comparing it back to something. What we found is the best metric out there is going to be to manual calibration time. Mm -hmm. So, a manual calibration time is a technician sitting down and actually taking the data points, writing the data points down, you know, and, and we don't include anything where they're putting it in a database later, but that's what we look at as real calibration time, you know, uh, Flipping the knobs as quick as you can, looking at an O-scope to see if it comes back to uh, back to center. You know, we don't look at that as being a good good marker for a, for a manual calibration. So then, what we do is we take that manual calibration and we give it a multiplier. So, and when I was working at Intercal as their lead developer, we were trying to keep that multiplier to under ten. So if it took you two hours to, or if it took you four hours to manually calibrate an oscilloscope, we could get that automation done in less than 40 hours. So four hours of work would come back into, you know, one week of calibration time. And that's what we were trying to do back then, right? And what we noticed is most labs that are doing things in-house and they got the technician who's doing automation part-time and then working on the bench and part-time. So he, he doesn't have the ability to build skills to doing nothing but automation. We found those numbers went up to as much as 40X, 20X the manual cal time. So there was a lot of times a four-hour calibration, you know, a manual four-hour calibration might take a, a month to get a technician to complete the automation and fully test that in that amount of time. So what we wanted to do with metrology.net is to push that number down. So right now, our goals in automation is to push those numbers down to, to sub 5x. So, so we can generate automation in sub 5x the manual cal time. 
And then that translates out to a decrease in the cost of buying the automation or a decrease in the cost of building the automation in-house. Right. And man hours, all that stuff. Yeah, like you were saying. Yeah, it makes sense. So, I mean, it just depends on the procedure then. So some of them may take you, like, I I just was curious. I was thinking about us, like, I wonder how long it takes him. Like, does, if you sit down with a new piece of equipment, would that take you like a year or not a year, like a month to to write or, uh, or a year? It wouldn't be. It's going to come down to the amount of data points that's in it. We just did a Regal. It's the first time I've dealt with the Regal O-scopes. So we just did the Regal, I believe it's the DS-1000Bs. So, but we sat down with those and I'm going to say in less than 30 hours, we have the entire series automated. So there are four scopes in the series and now they're all automated. They're all tested. You know, now they're ready to go through, you know, the customer's QA process. So are customers, do you get like requests for procedures? Do people email you like, hey, do you have this thing or whatever? And you don't. And you're like, okay, I'll get that for you. Yep. Yep. All the time. So Mm -hmm. um, one of the ones we did was the the Keysight uh, EXRs, MXRs. So we just did those CAL procedures. They're eight-hour CAL procedures. So we just got those in from a customer request saying, hey, you know, looks like my company is going to be buying a bunch of these. We want to receive them. And a lot of a lot of labs will do this is a lot of high quality, I'm going to say, manufacturers will do this. They'll receive the equipment and they want to calibrate it instead of trusting the calibration that comes from the manufacturer. So this is one of my customers who wants to calibrate these scopes before they put them on the production line. Yeah. So it minimizes their risk. They know they know their metrology. They know their measurement process. Somebody's evaluated what they're going to use them for. So they're going to bring them in, calibrate them, and then put them in the production line. Makes sense. Yeah, I've seen that a bunch. So. Yeah, the in-house places that uh, will receive things and, I guess, double verify. <laughs> yep. yeah, but I, th- I think they're also accounting for the travel. You know, sometimes things do get bang- banged up a little bit in travel. Yep. And there was a time out there that I won't mention the manufacturer, but they had a problem with their time base from their manufacturing they were doing in China. And every single device came in, failed time base, had to be adjusted, right? And then um, that tags the instrument that it's going to lower the interval. So they're going to bring it back, you know, not a year later, they're going to bring it back six months later and look at it. And now the time base that it's been adjusted to to their standard is perfectly fine. So then it takes them three years or two years to get them off that six month interval back into the one year interval like they were supposed to be, all because one manufacturer, two products out of the entire manufacturer's line all had a problem with time base from something being wrong on their factory floor. Man, that's that's killer. But that's yep. a, a, you said that was a, a Chinese manufacturer though? Well, it was an American company manufacturing. Yeah. Which is something I've also seen quite a bit of. And yeah. even, even people sending their best technicians to China to train those people to do the calibrations yeah. for the company. You know, that's something very common. Yeah. And time is one of those things that that's kind of, we measure time all the time, but it's kind of out there. So, so we talk about absolute time, but there's no such thing as absolute time. We always have a reference. <laughs> well, sure. 
Unless you're unless you're talking about like I don't know the sun or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, even then, you still have a reference. So when we look at the time that it is now, so my my clock says eleven fifty five, but that's going to go back to eleven fifty five on a date. And we, you know, most of the world tracks it back to a believed day when Christ was, uh, when Christ died. So BC. So that's a relative time. But then you start talking about the Chinese calendar. That's a different time scale. You get to, you know, the Middle East. You start talking about the, um, the times that are based on the phases of the moon. Right. So those are all different, different ways that we measure time. And there's no such thing as absolute time, though that's something we'll check with our uh, database stamps and other things we put in. We call it an absolute time, but it's all relative. Yeah. Sounds like a nightmare to, to figure out. <laughs> uh, so let's switch gears a little bit, uh, unless there's uh, other things you wanted to talk about on those automation side. Um, I wanted to kind of finish things up with talking about the conferences, because, you know, that's something that you and I talk about quite a bit. Um, and you're on the committee. That's correct. The committee for yes. MSC. Yeah. Yep. So I know people like, like myself, um, coming out of the military, I wasn't familiar with any of the conferences or what happens at them. And then of course, once I start the school, everyone's asking me if I'm going to be at them. Do you mind talking us through, uh, you know, the, the day-to-day -day calibrator, what happens at conferences and why they could be really uh, beneficial, not only to the the company sending the technicians, but the technicians themselves. Yep. Well, one of the things that we, uh, we started writing in, and I, I love the irony of this. So the first magazine issue in 2020, we had an article out there where I went to all the people I know in the industry and I asked them to give me a reason to go to the conferences. You know, and we put all of those together, put them in CalLab magazine, you know, trying to get the get the uh, people coming out to the conferences, trying to boost those numbers up. Because a lot of people prior to 2020 started, you know, crunching their budgets and, and you know, companies paying for people to get out to the conferences. That started to decrease. So we wanted to start showing people the reasons to come out. And then I love the irony of it. Then 2020 hits and then COVID hits and you know, then there was no conferences out in 2020. So hopefully 2021 with the vaccines and, you know, us knowing how to combat the virus, how to treat the virus, that's going to allow the, the, the conferences now to open up and more people to travel. But I think one of the best quotes I got out of that was uh, from Jeff Gust, where he said, you know, he owes everything in his metrology career by getting out to these these uh, um, these trade shows and getting in the training that's inside of these training, inside of these shows. You can go out and actually get training from people at NIST, you know, so they'll come out and do these. You'll get, you know, the primary people out of the out of the uh, manufacturing labs, you know, Fluke will always be doing something on, you know, pressure and temperature calibration. There's a lot of opportunities for you to meet those, those, uh, those key people in the industry. And then one of the ones that didn't make the, uh, didn't make the uh, list was uh, one of my customers talks about, you know, he went out to the trade show and, and he got into a conversation and had a beer with one of the guys from NIST. 
And then he's got an auditor coming in saying, no, 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 that's not the way you calculate measurement uncertainty. So he picks up the phone, calls his new friend at NIST, and has his NIST friend explain to the auditor why the auditor is wrong on his measurement uncertainty calculations. The ultimate wild card. <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah, 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 exactly. You say, what? Uh, here's <laughs> NIST for you. I, I think I, we got that right. <laughs> so, and that's one of the things out there that, that I think is really good with the industry is just getting out there and finding these these people that you know you might meet them you might meet them you know on a Facebook group or one of these other places but you really don't know who they are and what they do and are you getting you know faked because it's somebody stealing an account you know you get out to these trade shows and you get to have the conversations with the people and there's so many metrology conversations going on it's it's unbelievable the ultimate geek fest. Yeah, 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 exactly. And for those of you listening, the 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 school uh, sign calibration, we're we're also looking at getting our you know occasional badge programs done at those conferences as well. Uh, it it definitely is something that uh, I'm excited to start participating in. My first one was supposed to be 2020, and then of course you know COVID and all that. Um, but I also have heard that people can catch you at your. Uh, well, you might not have the. What what what's the event that you do at these at the end the what we metrology on tap a, yeah what we've done at a, quite a few of them was metrology on tap so so we wanted to do something where everybody could just come in and it didn't matter if you were a customer of ours or not a customer of ours you know you just got to come over sit back talk metrology have a beer you know we started it uh, three years ago out in uh, Washington D.C. And that turned out good. So then we did it again in Portland uh, and that one turned out really good. Then we did it again um, last year or the year before last. Oh man, I'm trying to remember where we are. I've been to so many of these shows. Well, I'll tell you, and, and this is, didn't come from you. This is from people that uh, have told me that when I was asking about conferences and they said, that's the event to go to afterwards. So <laughs> yeah, at least you're getting some sort of uh, word of mouth out there. Yep. Yeah, it's really good to do. And then there's, you know, there's always going to be a lot of people out there doing events. So Fluke will always be doing their, you know, salmon event and you can come out and get those. And we just found a day that nobody was doing anything that night and just stuck the metrology on tap event inside of there. So, but I found from the conferences, you get a lot of value out of the training and a lot of value talking to the people on the floor but you also get an equal amount of value just by the people you meet around because you can't, you can't carry on that conversation, you know, inside of the training class with the guy next to you. So, so the guy sitting next to you in that training class, he may not be an expert in that training that he's receiving and you're receiving, but that guy sitting next to you has experience in other areas of metrology. You know, and that's really what the value is, is, you know, whoever you wind up sitting next to you, you can start talking about metrology and the things that go on in metrology. And that may be a value to you now or a value to you in the future. Yeah. I mean, it it can't having those the networking and like you were saying, meeting people on the floor until I started this school and, and interacting with the standard manufacturers out there, as well as some of the experts out there, you aren't even, I wasn't even aware of some of the solutions that were already thought of for problems that I had. If I would have been at those type of things, I would have seen them 
long before, you know, Yep. sometimes it's, uh, you know, and it's, there's something to be said for getting to get, see some of the cool toys and all that. Um, I really like seeing the new technologies that come out. I did a live stream. I don't know if you caught up, Michael, but, uh, I did a live stream with, with, uh, Adatel's new, um, triple point cell and, you know, like things like that was unheard of years ago, you know, uh, quite a while back when I started the calibration, you know, doing a triple point, it, you know, in a very easy way is, is not, uh, wasn't always available. Yep. I haven't seen, uh, Adatel's new triple point. So hopefully they're going to advertise with that in, uh, in Calab magazine. So they're one of our, 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 uh, biggest advertisers, but I do love going out and seeing the new technologies. And I love how, how people can come in with an idea that seems to be completely left field. And then they can bring that idea into metrology and do things that other people thought were impossible years ago. So, you know, like mass, right? Mass was an area that they said there would never be automation in mass. Well, guess what? We have automation in mass. They've got scales out there you know, that can pick a mass up, put it on the scale, weigh it, and then move it to the side. You know, micrometers. They said, oh, no, 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 you'll never automate a, a, a micrometer. Well, they've got micrometer uh, automation out there. They got caliper um, um, uh, automation out there. So, yeah, it's amazing when you see that, that next thing that people come in and how they make a spin on the automation. So, yeah. What's the weirdest thing you've automated so far? Oh, man, that's going to be a tough one. Actually, um, Varian technology out there in Salt Lake City where you are, back way, 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 way back into the 90s was the first time I ever did voice recognition. And we built them a solution that they could actually read because they had to use both hands to do the calibration. So we built them a solution that, you know, the mouse would come up and click in the field and then they could speak the reading, right? Oh, wow. So, yeah. And now what we're working on, which is kind of cool, is we're working on bringing artificial intelligence into metrology. So there's a lot of people out there who have a solution that will OCR, you know, you can, you can put your camera over a voltmeter and you can highlight an area on the voltmeter and say, this is where you're going to take your reading and you're going to use an OCR algorithm. Well, what we're working on doing is building a training set. So, so we're going to do the same thing. You're going to put the meter down and you're going to bring your camera down and you're going to say, read this meter. But what we're going to do is if the artificial intelligence can't read that meter, it's going to add that reading to a training set and prompt the operator to enter the value he sees on the screen. And then we're going to put that into a training set and we're going to need somewhere between 10,000 to 50,000 pictures, right? And then the AI is going to get smart enough to where you can put a meter it's never seen before underneath it. And it should be able to, to learn how to read that meter Right. Mm -hmm. I'd only take five or six more pictures to learn how to do that. But what we discovered in the industry is they've used artificial intelligence to read stop signs, to read license plates. 
but nobody has ever trained an AI to read a voltmeter. Hmm. What is AI reading stop signs and stuff like that for? You, for like driving for automated? Yeah, cars? yeah. So your driverless you. cars. Yeah, hmm. they know how to read stop signs and stop lights and yields and speed signs. Right. The AI knows how to read all of those different signs and all of those different font or fonts. Right. And then yeah. the the traffic cops, you know, the traffic um, when you park somewhere where you weren't supposed to park, they used to drive by and put a chalk mark on your tire, then drive by an hour later and put another chalk mark on your tire. What they do today is they use GPS to tell them where the car is. And then the GPS ties into the camera and the angle to read your license plate. Oh, so man. drive around the second time an hour later, and it tells them what cars have been parked in one place too long. That must have happened to me down there in downtown Denver where you're at. I've had a parking ticket down there when I was on recruiting. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and I didn't see any chalk marks. It must have been that. <laughs> Yep, I'm not sure how long ago you were recruiting and if that technology was available, but it's been around for a while. Hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah, so a lot of things, a lot of things coming down the road. Um, we've, we've hit an hour. Uh, where's a good, what's a good way for people to reach you if they want to help out in any of these things, if they want to help out with the taxonomy, um, some of the, the, um, isn't there room to work on the digital certificates as well? Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of links out there. And I think for somebody to get the largest amount of information quickly quickly, is an miiknowledge.wiki.com. That's the best place to come in and, and grab that. Okay. And I'll try and I'll put that in the, the podcast description for anyone that's made it this far and is uh, interested. We'll have that uh, that link on there. Yeah, there's just tons and tons of information going all the way back to some of the first papers in 2013. And your website is callabsolutions.com. And, yep. it, and then it, if they want to see the taxonomy, that's going to be metrology.net. And then they can just click on the, uh, the metrology.net taxonomy tab and start reading through them. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it can't be said enough. I mean, we've talked about the, the, the what's on the website that I saw was 10% of the things. There's just so much work that needs to be done. And if it's, if any of you listening are, you know, committed to the field and want to help out the, the entire industry, this is a worldwide project here. Yep. Yeah. We've been doing a lot on that. It's just been, you know, it's, None of the none of the major um, none of the major players in metrology have taken this on because it's so big, you know. And and my thought process is, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Yeah, that's a big elephant. <laughs> getting all this taxonomy down, but I think it's a worthwhile thing, you know. And and something we'll talk about down the road, just as because Mike Mike will be. Uh, somewhat of a regular on the podcast. There's many things we got to talk about, uh, even uncertainty wise, you know, the, the, the status of uncertainties across the, the industry, even once in accredited labs are in disre disrepair. And we're going to be tackling that pretty much all of this year. We have many guests coming to talk about uncertainties in the field. And I know you and I have talked about, uh, 
there's a big discrepancy with similar scopes or exact same scopes and different uncertainties. So that's definitely something we're going to talk about in the future. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Uncertainties is a big, it's a big issue in the industry and it's kind of a thorn in my side because me looking at it from a software point of view, it's inputs and a formula. And there's no uncertainty I can't break down into inputs and a formula. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh I mean, we could go on long about <laughs> uncertainties because, you know, I can't find, you know, when we talk to people and say, hey, uh, you know, we're looking for someone to teach uncertainties and we're looking for information on uncertainties. Nobody feels like they're an expert at it, you know, and hopefully, you know, some of our guests this year, you know, we're, we're looking to have Jeff Gust on and, uh, you know, he was doing that P14 uh, committee talking about uncertainties and changing some of that stuff. Hopefully we can bring some clarity to the, to the industry this year, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of work to do on that one as well. I don't know if you're going to cut this out, but one of the funniest things I ever did at one of the trade shows at MSC is measurement science conference. A lot of times we'll bring in these STEM students, right? So mm -hmm. high school students and, you know, some college students will come in and they'll give them the opportunity to walk the floor and learn about metrology taxonomy. And it's a really good outreach. Well, I'm standing at my booth and this, you know, little 13, 14 year old girl, she comes up to me and she goes, oh, my God, this stuff is so boring. So I said, OK, you want to have some fun? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, go over to that guy right over there and ask him, how certain are you about your uncertainty? <laughs> Who was that she guy? comes back to me about an hour later and she goes, oh, my God, he just went on and on and on and on. Who should I do it to next? <laughs> Oh, so she did find it fun. That I yeah. don't know. That could be boring in itself. <laughs> so, but um, but I, that was one of the things about uncertainty that I think a lot of people, you know, and in in that statement, you know, a lot of people don't get about uncertainty is you know it's uncertainty. You know, it's 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 your guesstimation. It's your your idea of how wrong you think you are. You know. Yeah. And that's why I love that statement. How certain are you about your uncertainty? Yeah, that is a loaded question for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Uh, then we will uh, definitely hear from you more throughout this year. Uh, did you have any parting shots for anybody? No, no, no. Just thanks for uh, letting me come in this. And, and I hope you get uh, a lot of subscriptions on, on this uh, or a lot of uh, people viewing these podcasts because – Cena did, uh, she started looking for other people that are doing podcasts and there's just very little metrology related information that's out there. And with the changes that we're going to see with the personnel and the, you know, people retiring, this is going to become more and more important. For sure. Yeah. I think it's uh, an easy way to pass a little bit more long winded information. Because if you put it into a video, sometimes that can be hard uh, because people don't want to watch an hour long video, but having an audio thing that you can have with you at work, you know, can, can be, can be nice and pass the time by at the same time. Yep. And I hope I get to see you and a lot of people who have heard these podcasts out at the shows. So measurement science used to be in March, April timeframe. They've moved to July. So they're looking the 19th through 22nd of July. 
And then, and they're going to be in, you know, Southern California. And then also NCSL is going to be in Florida, Orlando, Florida, and they're going to be 22nd through 26th of August. And, and those, all of those dates are tentative for now. Is that correct? Well, they're, they're pretty much tied in stone. So, um, you know, the, the, the organizations have to get the venues and they've got to tie those dates down. So they're carved in stone. The dates are, it's going to be a question of, can they have the conference or not? Right. So, yeah. so the, the dates are fixed, you know, they could get canceled, but hopefully knock on wood, you know, the COVID viruses, you know, the vaccines and the, um, and the treatment and whatnot gets confidence down where people can start traveling again. Yeah. And, you know, if, if uh, everything looks like it's going to go forward, I think we'll do a nice kind of a primer for everybody, for the listeners, so they, they know what's going to be at MSC. Uh, maybe we could do the same thing for NCSLI if, they are, if they're interested. But at least people will know a little bit more about what's going to be there. Yep. Sounds good. Well, Mike, it's always a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you more on future podcasts. Yep. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You too.